0: the scriptures to the gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in the first chapter. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there so you're ready to go. If not, um, the words will be up on the screen behind me, and we'll look at them together. But before we read uh, the text for today, I wanted to um, tell you a little story. Uh, Over 20 years ago, I was in Bible college training for ministry, and while I was there, we had a course schedule, and there were certain courses that I was looking forward to and some others that I wasn't. Uh, One of the courses I was not looking forward to, in case you were wondering, was uh, fasting. Yeah, we had a whole course on fasting, which just made me feel guilty and hungry. Um, There was a a course on time management, which I thought, this is ridiculous, I don't need this, turned out to be very helpful. But the one course that I was really excited about was biblical preaching. And I thought to myself, hey, I, I feel like maybe someday I'll be a preacher and this would be really helpful for me. And so I was excited about it. And when I finally went um, to the class, uh, it began, the instructor laid out the course uh, schedule, how it was going to go, and then in the first few weeks, he spent a lot of time teaching us how to outline a sermon, so how to prepare and gather your thoughts and collect them and put them into a particular sermon format. And for those of you that haven't studied biblical preaching, uh, the format really resembled um, a formal essay, so if you've written a formal essay for school... Then you know that an essay typically has one big idea you're trying to present, and then in the first opening paragraph, you kind of tell everyone what the idea is, and you might make some points or assertions about it. And then in the following paragraphs, you then take each of those points, and you break them out, and you provide all the information, and then you finish it all with a conclusion. Some of you are cringing, as you remember high school or college. And so you've got this basic format that you would give, and I remember he gave us this format, and he said, okay, everyone in the class gets to pick their own subject. Whatever you want to preach a sermon on, but you have to create your sermon using this format. So, all the students went off, started working on their assignment. Uh, I, went, I went back to my apartment and I began to think to myself, because I, I began thinking, uh, what are the greatest sermons, you know, ever written? Because I want mine to be one of them, uh, so I should probably take a look. So, I remember I, I thought about the, the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most significant sermon ever preached by Jesus himself. And I went and I looked at it, and I was fascinating to find that Jesus did not use my instructor's format. He did not introduce his idea and give us three points in a poem and then a conclusion and wrap it all up. Nice and neat. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I wonder what Peter has to say with this. So I went to the book of Acts. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, stood up and preached one of the most incredible sermons ever preached. 3,000 people came to faith in Christ at his words. And guess what I didn't find? Three points in a poem. Then I went to Paul. Paul stood up at the Areopagus and spoke to the Greek intellectuals of his day. And he talked about God and, uh, and this unseen God. And, and the people were, were just mesmerized by his words. And I thought, oh, looky there. No three points. So in my 19-year-old arrogance, I went back to the instructor and I said, Hey, you ever noticed <laughs> the greatest sermons of all time did not follow your format? And he said, do it the way I showed you. So I, I went away. And I prepared my sermon outline, and I handed it in. All the students handed in their outline, and he would mark them and hand them back. So I was excited to see what I would get on this mark, because I thought, hey, I might be a a good preacher, and I think I did a pretty good job. I got my outline back, and I got a 7 out of 10. So that was was okay. And then I discovered that uh, my girlfriend, Jessica, who is now my wife, is the only student ever in his class to get a 10 out of 10 on her sermon outline. (laughs) And she has reminded me of that on a number of occasions, to which I usually respond, hey, you want to help me write a sermon? And she would say, no, that's not my calling. Uh, So she's very good at it. Uh, So today you're going to hear from a pastor who got a 7 out of 10 on his sermon outline. And the reason why I shared that with you um, is because today I want to share a text with you and then I'm going to give you three points. I'm going to try my best to follow the format. Uh, so let's go to Mark chapter 1, and then we're going to read a portion of this chapter, and I'm going to stop along the way and fill in some blanks and add some context. Now, Mark's gospel, there are four gospel accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible. Mark's gospel account is written with Romans in mind, and what you'll discover is each, each of the gospels has a different focus or emphasis. Mark's gospel is all about the power of Jesus, and it literally goes from miracle to miracle, from wonder to wonder, because Romans, uh, they were impressed by power. And so Mark sets out to say look at the power of Jesus look at the miracles he wrought. And so so that we have you're going to see this right in the text. And so we go to Mark and we're in chapter 1 and we're going to begin at verse 29. It says this. And immediately he speaking of Jesus left the synagogue. Synagogue was where the Jews would gather to learn about, learn about God and to fellowship. So he left that and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now these are four of Jesus's 12 disciples. These are key disciples. This is very important. It says in the next verse, now Simon's mother-in-law. Now, this is important to note. Simon, his name later becomes Peter. So you know him as Peter. At this point, it's early in the story, his name is Simon. So they entered into Simon's. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Okay, Simon was married, Peter was married, and his mother-in-law was sick. And immediately they told Jesus him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. Some theologians believe this is why Peter denied Christ three times. Took a second. That's an old Bible college joke. I I shouldn't have thrown that in there. Um, It's probably not true. Verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all that were sick and oppressed by demons. Like Word spreads. Jesus did this incredible miracle. Took her off her deathbed. And now the crowds of people are are gathered around the house. And he healed all who were sick and oppressed by demons. People who were physically sick. People who were being influenced by demonic spirits. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. So physical ailments he healed. He cast out many demons. People who were being influenced by evil spirits. Were causing them all kinds of grief. He set them free. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So, demons are fallen spirits, fallen angels. They come down from heaven. They know exactly who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. So he shows up at the beginning of his ministry, starts healing people, and they're like, we know who he is, and they're trying to speak through the people. And Jesus would say, shh, no, don't reveal who I am. And he casts them out of the people, setting them free. It's fantastic. Now, as we continue, this is where things um, get interesting for us, for our topic today. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark... He departed and went out to a desolate place. Jesus went out to be alone. And there, what does it say he did? He prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They were looking for Jesus. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. So morning comes, the crack of dawn, the crowds are gathered around the house. More people to be healed. More people to be set free. More work to be done. Jesus, you've got to come back. The people are waiting. you. They need you. They need you. They need you. And Jesus now does something after praying that does not seem to fit. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. And that is why I came out. And he went out throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Today, I want to speak with you about the subject of prayer. Prayer. And I want to share with you some ideas about prayer that are taken from the text, specifically about the way in which Jesus prayed and the and the role that prayer had in his life. And since this is such an important topic, um, you know, if you grew up in the church, like I grew up from a time I was a little kid in the church, and I always knew that I should pray. I was taught from a little kid, like, hey, you should say your prayers. And so I always knew that I was supposed to pray. And I don't know about you guys if you grew up in that kind of background. Chances are, at at times, you've felt guilty because you didn't pray enough. Who prays enough? I've never met a Christian, or a non-Christian for that matter, that's like, I pray too much. No one's ever said that. Like, there's this sense we know we should do it, and so that's how I grew up, and I hope today that you will walk away with a little bit of a different perspective. Or perhaps you're here today, and you're exploring faith, and you're not even sure about all this stuff, and you're going, okay, prayer is an interesting idea talk to somebody I can't see. Isn't that what crazy people do? And besides, even if I were to try it, I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know how to do it. I wouldn't know the right approach. So I want to talk about all of that today. Uh, I guess I should present you with my three points. I'm getting long on the introduction, so I'm losing marks already. Here's my three points uh, taken from the text. Number one, Jesus made prayer a priority. Number two, Jesus prayed in private. Now, Probably talk next week more about public prayer and corporate prayer together, but today I want to focus on private prayer and the significance of it. Point number three, Jesus experienced personal relationship with his Father through prayer. Now that I've introduced the subject and I've shared with you my three main points, now as I enter into the body of my sermon, um, it's at this point that I'm going to flip the points around and lose more marks on my sermon outline. But I want to begin where we would normally end, I want to begin by talking about the personal relationship that Jesus had with his Father through prayer, and why that's so important, why I believe we need to start there. See, this idea of having a personal relationship with God is, uh, is one that gets thrown around a lot in church circles. If you've been in church for a while, people talk, do you have a personal relationship with God? And you're thinking, well, I'm not sure, because it's this odd concept. It's like, I know God is out there, and I'm here, so how, how do I have a personal relationship with a God I can't see? I wanted to share with you quickly um, a little story from my past. When I was born into this world, my parents uh, considered themselves to be nominal Catholics, which they weren't devout Catholics. There are devout Catholics and nominal Catholics. There are devout Protestants and Pentecostals and any denomination you choose, and then there are nominal ones. So my parents would go to Church on Easter and Christmas, maybe they never opened their Bible, never prayed. Their faith was a title, something that they had, but they didn't, they didn't really practice it. And so, when I was born into this nominal Catholic family, um, things were as they were. And then one day, my mother got invited to go to a to a tent meeting. And back in those days, in the '70s, uh, they would have evangelists that would travel around in tents. How many have been to a tent meeting? Okay, we got a few folks in the crowd that have been. So they would set up these tents, and the evangelists would come in, and all these people would gather, and they would sing, and the evangelists preached. The evangelist's name was Ernie Hollins, and he was uh, was a convict that had come to faith, and he showed up in this tent, and I, I don't know what he said, but I'm certain that he preached about how Jesus came not only to forgive you for your sins, but to make a way for you to have a personal relationship with God. My mom was in the crowd. She heard the message. And I don't know if she fell down on her knees instead of prayer, or if she went to the front, or how it all happened, but something happened. So my mom comes home from the camp meeting, and uh, my dad stayed at home. It's typical, you know. Usually, you know, the guy stays at home, sends the wife off to church, go see if it's of God, and, you know, if it's dangerous. Um, <laughs> we send our wives forward. Anyway, so my dad was at home. She comes home, and she says, she, says, she just comes home, and she starts like, Jesus, my dad's listening, okay, this is odd. He's talking about Jesus, talking about how she met God. It's like, okay, that's... Right, because he's thinking, um, you met God? Like, God's in heaven, wherever that is, and we're here on earth. <laughs> he's eternal, we're mortal, he's, he's, uh, he's invisible, and we live in a visible world. And, and, like, this idea of God being distant is not unusual, right? Like, if you open up the Bible and you read the first half of the book... The Old Testament, you see God revealing himself to his people, but there's always a wall between his people and him. And even his own chosen people, the Jews, for them to come to God, they came to a temple. And the temple, by the way, had giant walls around it. And then once you got inside those walls, there was like an outer court. And then guess what? More walls. Then there was an inner court where the priests did their work. And then there was another wall. And you went inside and there was like a, a special room where God lived. And even in the room where God lived... There was a big giant curtain just to keep the separation between God and even the priests. And so the people would come, and if they had sinned, they would bring an appropriate sacrifice. And the sacrifice, they would bring the sacrifice to God, but they couldn't just walk into the middle of the temple and be like, Here you go, God, turtle dove. They couldn't do that. There There was a mediator, there was somebody between them and God, and it was a priest. And the priest had to wear certain robes and follow rules and go through the walls in certain ways. And so it was very clear to everybody that there was a clear, defined separation between a holy God and a sinful, broken people, right? So when my dad's going, oh, you met God, even he, as a nominal Catholic, is going, yeah, sure, where was the priest, right? Like, like, this doesn't work like that. And she's like, oh, yes, it does work like that. And the next day, she was still the same. She started reading this book all the time. That was strange. Never happened in our home before. She started praying. Not only was she praying to God, she was praying for my dad. That gets awkward. And and my dad tells a story like this. He says, at some point along the way, he actually prayed to God and said, God, if I don't get whatever she got, I don't even know if I can still live with her. She's so different. (laughs) And so he was finally open to it. Um, My mom gave him the cassette tape of the sermon that she had heard. Remember cassette tapes? <laughs> and, and he listened to the entire message, just like she had heard the message. And at the end of the message, um, guess what happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. And he's like, great, it didn't work. Because it's not a formula. So he listened to it again. Nothing. Didn't work. God, please, whatever happened to her, I need it to happen to me because she's weird and we don't get along anymore. So it's like he's praying and he's he's listening to this tape over and over again. And all of us, somewhere along the way, the reality that he had a relationship with God through Christ dropped into his spirit. and, And my dad was transformed. Now, it's interesting to note, some people hear the message, make a decision, and they're transformed instantly. And other people, maybe this is your story, it was a progression where you kept moving towards and seeking God and then all of a sudden you're like oh wow everything's new and everything's changed. So my parents are now radically in love with God. They they feel like they have this personal relationship they didn't have before. And my mom used to be in a rock band. And so her and her band started singing gospel songs. And so they would show up in the local park and they would set up their my dad would set up the speakers and they would set up their band and they would be out there singing about Jesus in the park. And there was like those those little water things for kids, you know, a sprinkler and like a little cup kind of bowl-y kind of thing with about a foot of water was full of pee. you know the ones, <laughs> the concrete and all, and me and my my brothers would be running around in the in the water, listening to gospel songs, and then my dad would stand up, he could barely speak English, he'd be like, "Good, and Jesus he love you," and he would try to talk and and they would this is what we did on our weekends, you know something something had radically transformed inside. Uh, My parents' lives. And it was the knowledge of this. Like, in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says this. He talks about how Jesus becomes our mediator. He is our high priest who goes between us and our Heavenly Father. He's the final priest. He offers himself as the final sacrifice. And he makes a way for you and I, through him, to boldly approach the throne of grace. Hebrews 4 where we can walk into the presence of a holy God, walk into the presence of our heavenly father and talk to him and be with him and know him. That's a radical idea. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's what dropped into my parents' heart and transformed their lives. That is what I hope will transform your lives and your prayer life as we continue on our subject today. So, Jesus experienced personal relationship with his father through prayer. How can we we know God personally? This is a great question. So if God is invisible, if he's in the spirit realm, how can we know this God personally? Well, there's a number of things we could talk about. I'll just touch on them quickly. Number one, scripture. Like, if you want to know what God is like, and if you want to know what's true, and if you want to know how he's working in the world, like, you read this book, and you will begin to learn about your Heavenly Father. So it's extremely important to read the Bible and know what's in there. The second thing there is community. Now, originally, I had church there. The problem with that is that when you think of church, people often think of steeples, they think of organized groups. The church is supposed to be the community of God's people. And the reason why you get to know God through community is because, this is cool, God reveals himself to his different children in different ways. So God will show me something and he'll show you something that's different. And when we fellowship, I get to hear and learn about God through you, through your gift, through your revelation of God. And this is amazing. And so that's why we come to church and we build relationships and we get into small groups because God answers our prayers. He teaches us. He corrects us through the community around us. That's amazing. So we can get to know God through community. Lastly, um, experience. Now I said experience because um, relationships are built with time and experience. Would you agree with that? You can meet somebody, think they're the best person in the world. Oh, I'm so inspired by this person. And then you live with them for a few weeks. And you're like, get me out of here. This person is a fraud, is a jerk. Likewise, you can meet somebody who is, you think is just the worst person in the world, and then you get to know them, and you realize this person is amazing. And with time and experience, relationships deepen and form, and that's true of your faith in God. The longer you walk with him, The more time you spend with God, the more you go through ups and downs in your life, you realize He is faithful and loving, and and your relationship with Him deepens through time and experience. So we could talk about all those things, but today we're going to focus in on prayer. Specifically, my three points. And we'll begin today with point number three. That Jesus experienced personal relationship with His Heavenly Father through prayer. See, I believe that personal relationship, this thing that we long to have with our Heavenly Father, cannot exist without communication. For example, if I were to tell you that I know and am friends with uh, Tom Hanks, what would you think? you think, eh, that is pretty cool, right? Yeah. Um, and if you say, oh, well, do you guys talk often? Well, no. Uh, I watched all his movies, though. And I even read a biography about his family, and I know all about his, his history and how his careers went. Like, yeah, yeah, but do, do, you, like, do you like text? No. Nope. Do you, do you email? Have you ever met him? No, I haven't, but I know all about him, and you'd all agree. That's not relationship, because that's a one-sided thing. That's, I have knowledge about him. I'm a fan, not a friend. So relationship requires communication. Communication is essential. What is communication? It's a process by which information is exchanged, okay, between individuals through a common system of symbols, signs, or behaviors. In other words, simply put, communication is a two-way process. Two ways. If I send you an email and it goes right into your junk folder, don't you love when that happens? That's not communication. It's only communication if you read the email and respond, and then we know that the information has been transmitted in two directions. That's communication, right? Uh, if, If my wife says to me, hey, I really like the scent of this perfume, In her mind, she may think she's communicating something and the message isn't coming across clear because I'm thinking she likes the scent of this perfume, but the message underneath might be, I want this under the tree at Christmas time. You you track with me, right? So sometimes there's underlying messages. And by the way, communication, even though it's a two-way process, it's not always verbal. Like body language is kind of a big deal. Tone is a huge deal, right? As you think about how communication happens, it's... There are people that attend our church who met online. Isn't that cool? So they didn't meet the traditional way. Like you meet in a coffee shop and you're like, hi. And it's awkward and you don't know what to say. No, they were like chatting online in chat rooms and then like sending emojis back and forth. And it's like true love. And then you meet. So that's amazing. Communication can happen in in so many different ways. But it requires two-way communication. It's amazing to me. I'll tell my kids. I'll say, hey, guys, look at me. And they all look at me. I need you to clean this mess up right now. Okay, Dad. I'll come back an hour later. It's still there? Hey, guys. I asked you to clean this up. I'm like, no, you didn't. If I tell them there's ice cream in the kitchen, they all hear it clearly and move. I I don't understand selective hearing or something. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I bought a cable to connect my camcorder to my laptop because I wanted to be able to capture video directly to the thing. It needed a special cable, so I went on Amazon and got it in two days. That was exciting. And the cable shows up, and, it, and everything worked. I plugged it all in, and it turned it on, but guess what? It didn't work. And I well, went on these forums online, and I'm searching and searching, trying to figure out why won't this cable work, and I discovered that the cable can only communicate in one direction. And like the band, it was insufficient. <laughs> Jason got that one. Um, the cable could only talk in one direction. And so, so what I had to do was buy another cable, obviously. But the reason why I tell you that is because for so many people, their prayer life is one directional. And that doesn't work. Prayer is not you sitting and telling God all the things he already knows. You can do that. But prayer is so much more than that. Because I believe that prayer is one of the key ways that we live in relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's, it's, it's deep It's relational, and it has to be two ways. How do we know that this is what Jesus was experiencing? Well, in our text, um, I'll just read it to you, Peter comes and says, hey, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. And the natural thing that we would all do is be like, oh, there's people need me, I'm going to go there. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus said, Peter said to him, uh, sorry, Jesus said, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Somehow, through Jesus' private conversation with his heavenly father, he received clarity, direction, he was reminded of his mission, he was empowered, and in spite of this need, he knew what he had to do next, and he changed directions. That tells me that Jesus wasn't just sitting there going, hey, God was talking to him, there was relationship happening, it was directing his life, and that's what I hope prayer would be for all of us. That as we go to our Heavenly Father in prayer, that we would not just say stuff, but that we would hear something, that we would receive direction, clarity, and purpose. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Uh, Sometimes I just panic. Sometimes I make a pros and cons list, and I get counsel, and we do all the stuff to figure out what's next, but do we pray? Sometimes we say we're going to pray about it, but that's usually to get out of something we don't want to do, right? Let's be honest. Nobody's ever done that but me, I guess. Uh, But... Do we truly pray about it? Like when there's a big decision to to make is the first thing we do is pull away by ourselves and say, God, I don't know what's next. Would you show me? That's a personal relationship. And I'll tell you this, prayer, going to God for direction is way better than panic. Now, Jesus may have been the most disciplined person that ever lived. That wouldn't surprise me. But something tells me that Jesus didn't get up before the crack of dawn to pray because he had to. There's this inclination that I have that Jesus wanted to pray. That by getting away and talking to his heavenly father, something incredible was happening. He was experiencing strength. Prayer should be life-giving. So, Jesus experienced personal relationship with his father through prayer. That's what I hope for you. Now we move on to point two. Remember, we're going in the opposite direction. Point two, Jesus prayed in private. Now, there's much to be said about public prayer, praying together, prayers of agreement, Intercessory prayer. I'm going to talk about that stuff next week. But I think there's something about this private prayer. Jesus prayed alone. Like if you read the Gospels, there's only a couple of occasions that I could find where Jesus prays publicly, where everyone's listening to his words. The majority of the time, he prayed by himself. So it's great that we pray together, but praying before God in private is something significant. Jesus modeled it for his disciples. And there was something significant about the way that he prayed by himself. In Luke chapter 11, in fact, the disciples were so used to Jesus pulling away in private that they actually approached Jesus on this occasion. Luke 11 verse 1 says, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. They saw what Jesus did, and they wanted to know how he prayed. And so Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer, but... It's, it's always interested me that the disciples didn't ask Jesus how to preach. And I'm pretty sure that if they had, he would not have said, you need three points in a poem. I'm just throwing that out there, right? Just, I'm still trying to make that point after 22 years. <laughs> but they didn't ask him how to preach, didn't ask him how to start a charity, lead an organization, build a... They said, teach us to pray. They saw that Jesus' personal private time with God was the source of his direction and his strength for everything else he did. And they wanted to know what that was all about. And so Jesus gave them the Lord's Prayer to set them in the right direction. I, I find that absolutely fascinating. Jesus prayed privately. Now, again, I'm not saying that there, we, we pray together each Sunday in our groups before we serve. We pray in our services. We pray uh, with people at the prayer area following service. We pray with our families, hopefully, with your spouse, with your kids, before our meals. like prayer. But private prayer is something altogether different. Jesus, Jesus confronted some of the religious people of the day and said, look, you love to pray in public. You love everyone to see you and hear your words and go, oh, you're so spiritual. But Jesus said, you've already received your reward. You want to look good, you, ta-da, you've done it. Instead, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into your closet. I want you to find a quiet place where no one knows what you're doing and shut the door and pray to your Father who sees in secret and hears you. Now, that's a, that's a radical idea. And I want to challenge all of us to begin practicing this because If you're praying by yourself, your spouse doesn't see, your kids don't see, nobody at church sees, it's because you actually believe that God sees and hears. That's something altogether different. That's why Jesus encourages us to move in that direction. And I'm not saying that public prayer isn't good. What I'm saying is that private prayer ought to precede public prayer. Does that make sense? Or that public prayer is no substitute for personal communion with God. So this idea of coming to God alone, talking to him, listening to him, two-way communication. We're not praying to get something. We're praying to know our Heavenly Father, and that's entirely different. So Jesus prayed in private. Here's the last thing. Um, Point number one. We'll close with point number one. That's good. Jesus made prayer a priority. Now, the reason why I flipped those three points is because this is where sermons on prayer usually start. You should pray more. And we're all like, yeah, I know. Feel guilty, go home, try to do it more, fail. Wait till the next sermon on prayer and be like, oh yeah, I heard this before. I know I should do it, but I still don't do it. All right, so we usually start there. You got to do it. It's the right thing to do. And I wanted to end on it because I think that desire is greater than duty. That when we have a personal relationship with God, we desire to talk to him. You see, when young people fall in love, what do they want to do? They want to talk to each other. And they just talk on the phone. They talk, 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 talk till they run out of things to say and then they just sit on the phone and breathe. It's all communication. It's communication. I'm just sitting here breathing. I have nothing to say, but I don't want to hang up because I love you. And that's what I'm communicating by just being here, right? So there's a desire. Like imagine if we desired to talk to our Heavenly Father that much. It wasn't like, oh, I got to do this. So desire, I think, is, is greater than duty. If I... Um, if I came home from a trip, and I've been away for a week, and my, my children are all, you know, on the front porch of the house waiting for me, I pull in the driveway, and my wife's there, and they're, all my kids are like, Daddy! And my wife's like, Nathan! That doesn't usually happen, but I'm just go with me, we're imagining, this is hypothetical, so they're all just like so excited to see me, and I get out of the car, and I start unloading my bags, and then I pull out a book, and it's called like dads for dummies or something and I'm, I'm flipped through to the 10th chapter and it's like on a, when you come home from a long trip uh, look your kids and your wife in the eye and tell them that you miss them. So I put the book down and I really missed you. Give them a hug. My kids would be going like kind of, kind of thought this would just come natural dad like just kind of grab us you know and my wife would be looking at me like I shouldn't have to tell you to say you miss me. Why are you reading that in a book right? So we all get this. Desire is better than duty. But we dare not throw out duty. We dare not throw out duty. Because duty leads to desire. Let me explain this. Years ago, I worked with a, with a gentleman from overseas. And uh, as we got talking, I found out he was married. So I asked him, like, how did you meet your wife? A great, great question to learn more about this guy. And he told me <laughs> that his marriage was arranged. And this blew my mind as a young man. I'm like... I'm about to get married. I can't imagine my parents picking for me. Like, you should see the couch they picked. I'm not, I don't want them to pick my wife. And and I'm just trying to like, I'm trying to process this. I'm like, okay, your parents picked your wife? He's like, yeah. like, how'd that go? He says, well, I was in love with someone else. Okay. But this girl, they had chosen when I was a kid and the families were close and it was, it all made sense. And so, he had to marry a girl while he loved another girl, and that was the culture he lived in, and I'm just sitting there going, how does that work? I said, so, is this still awkward? Like, he says, no. He says, I love her more than anything in the world. I said, well, I was like, tell me more. How'd this happen? I said, well, we got married. I was, I was a husband. She was a wife. We did it out of duty. It was for our families. It was what was expected of us. And he said, over the years, our love for one another grew. This blew my mind, because I'm from the West, right? I'm from the West, where it's like, you have to fall in love, and you have to have these feelings. And I, I always had thought of arranged marriage as this horrible idea, but now that I'm a parent, it's, <laughs> it makes so much sense on the other side. And, and he described how, he, how the duty led to desire, and it blew my mind. But you know this. This is true in your life. You, you want to eat chocolate instead of vegetables, but the more you eat the vegetables even because you know it's right and you eat them out of duty, if you do it long enough, what happens? You begin to crave the healthy food and you eat the other stuff and like, oh, it's too sweet. Some of you are shaking your heads. No, that didn't happen for me. But you start to crave. Exercise, you you do it for the first time and you're sore and you're stiff and you feel like you're dying. You keep doing it out of duty. And what happens? Your body begins to love it. There's endorphins that are released. You feel stronger. You feel healthier. You sleep better. Your weight goes down and you're like, this is the best. And then you want to get out and do it. So duty can lead to desire. So we dare not throw out duty, but the goal is desire. And if we approach prayer, uh, perhaps you're, you're here today and you're like, man, I just oh, I love praying. It's the best thing in the world. You're, a, you're in a minority group. Many of us pray out of a sense of duty because we know we should. But imagine if we could do that and that sense of desire would continue to grow as we grow in our relationship with him, where we wake up in the morning and it's the first thing we want to do. When I started pastoring um, nine years ago here at this church, I didn't drink coffee. And that wasn't a problem for me until I had to start meeting with people, because pastors meet with people typically at coffee shops. So someone would be like, Pastor, my life's falling apart. Can I meet with you, talk about what's going on? And I would say, sure, let's meet for chocolate milk. It just it wasn't right. It wasn't right. So I, I had to train. I, I started drinking coffee. I hated it. But over time, guess what happened? I grew to love it, and now I wake up in the morning, and one of the first things that comes to mind is, I need a coffee. I'm going to sit on the deck and sit with a book and a coffee, and it's, it's this thing that was once a duty has grown to desire. That's my hope for every one of you, because, man, if, if prayer was just about, like, get up, do it, force yourself, and if it was that way for the rest of your life, that would be horrific. But it's something we can look forward to. It is something that engages us personally with God. It's something that we can, if we haven't already, grow to love. And that's my hope for you. So my challenge today as I close this message is simply this. Pray. Would you make a point to do that this week? Would you set time aside? Maybe it's first thing in the morning. Maybe it's before you go to bed. I don't know what you need to do. But set aside time. And if you're doing it, not just talking but listening Make it a two-way communication, saying, God, I, wanna, I don't want to just stuff from you. I want to know you. And you approach it that way. I guarantee that in time, you'll grow to love it. You'll grow to desire it. You'll get so much benefit out of spending time with your Heavenly Father. So would you, would you commit to doing it this week? I don't care if my sermon's a 7 out of 10 today. If you leave here and you pray. And we all win. Imagine what would happen if this community of people called Pathway Church were to begin to pray in private to begin loving their time with God. Imagine how we'd hear from God. Imagine how God would direct us and steer us and encourage us. So let's pray. So I want to encourage you. Maybe if you're new to faith and you're like, I don't know about any of this, would you try it? Would you get by yourself? Would you talk to your Heavenly Father who hears you? That you can access His presence uninhibited. Hebrews 4 says that you can boldly approach the throne of grace. Sometimes after church, I'll stand in the lobby, and people who are new will be like, oh, there's the pastor, and they kind of stand at a distance waiting for an opportunity to say hi. But when my kids come out, I'm standing in the hall, and they come out from Pathway Kids, you know what they do? They come up behind me, and they grab my leg, and I'm thinking, I hope that's one of my kids. Uh, but they just grab, they don't, they don't wait their turn, they, they don't wait, they don't ask, they just, they run up and grab me. And you and I can approach God in that way. He's our Father. He wants to spend time with us. And when we spend time with Him, we're the ones that benefit. So, so I want to encourage you to pray today. So with that, let me close in prayer, and we've got a few announcements. Father, thank You uh, for the example that we have in Jesus. Thank You, Lord, that as we look at His life, we see how He was devoted to spending time with You on a regular basis. And because of what he has done through his life, his death, and his resurrection, we can now have that same relationship with you that he had. That as your children, we can run into your arms. I pray that we wouldn't miss that. I pray that our prayer wouldn't be just duty, just discipline, just something we do to appease our conscience, but it is something we would long to do. That in the weeks and months ahead, our desire to spend time with you would grow. So that we'd wake up in the morning and it'd be the first thing we'd want to do. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for being a good and loving Father. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. will see you next week.